your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. There's yttrium, ytterbium, actinium, Well, welcome aboard. And uh, we're in the midst of Passover, and Easter is coming up. So we are going to talk about Moses and we're going to talk about eggs. Eggs, of course, uh, widely eaten at Easter and also during Passover and interesting stories behind them. We will also explore this uh, new scare about uh, wearing masks that have graphene in them. We're going to take a look at the effect of pollen on COVID-19 and uh, the question for you also, of course. So here we go. Let me throw out that question. What is the link between stalagmites and Michelangelo's La Pieta? So we're looking for the link between stalagmites and Michelangelo's La Pieta. If you know the answer, 514-790-0800. You can, of course, uh, you can use that number for any science-related question as well. And 514-800 is the uh, text uh, code for you to contact us and we'll try to answer as many questions as uh, as possible well let me start out with the mask uh, story graphene and what an interesting material this is in fact so interesting that it was worthy of a nobel prize that was uh, handed out in physics in 2010 and uh, that was to two university of uh, Manchester physics professors, uh, Andre Geim and uh, uh, Alexei Novoselov, or Konstantin Novoselov. And uh, it was for their basically finding a way to produce this rather remarkable material in a very easy way. And boy, is it ever easy. Think of it like this. Take some graphite, and the lead in a pencil, of course, is graphite. So you can just uh, take a pencil and make a mark on paper, then take a piece of scotch tape, put it over that mark and lift the scotch tape. And uh, if you look at the scotch tape, you'll see a smudge on there. And that, of course, is some of the graphite that has come off. Now put another piece of scotch tape over that scotch tape and peel off another smudge of graphite. And if you imagine doing this many, many times, you will eventually have just one very thin layer of graphite basically just one atom thick on your scotch tape and that is graphene and graphene has some remarkable properties it is an extremely good conductor of electricity and heat in fact better than any other material in the world it is 200 times stronger than the equivalent weight of, of steel so its potential is is fascinating it can be used to desalinate uh, seawater because of its filtering uh, ability and because of its filtering ability it has also been uh, introduced into masks now exactly how this is done uh, is um, proprietary but there is some information that you know i've been able to to find out just by um, looking around at uh, what manufacturers are, are doing. And there are several different technologies. And one technology 
they take the uh, material that is used in the surgical masks that we normally wear, those blue masks, and they expose the outer layer, which is polypropylene, to a laser beam. And that converts some of the polypropylene into, into graphene, which then is very effective at filtering out the virus. And furthermore, it also allows the mask to be sterilized by just exposing it to sunlight. There's another type of mask, uh, which uh, has a layer of what is called graphene oxide in it. And uh, that too has amazing filtering uh, possibilities. There are many other uh, types of, of masks that incorporate graphene in some uh, fashion. And it isn't really clear what the technology is in these masks that we heard about this week that the Quebec government had distributed to schools and to, uh, I, I think, daycare centers as well. And Health Canada uh, has said that these masks should not be used because they had detected some health problem. The issue here is that Health Canada has not released any of the, the, the information. We don't know what it is that they actually detected. But the inhalation of any small particulate matter is of concern because let's face it, you know, that was the issue with uh, the inhalation of asbestos. That's the issue with the inhalation, inhalation of very fine silica, causes silicosis in the lungs, or the inhalation of very finely powdered coal. So there are reasons to worry about inhaling very fine particulate matter, whether it's graphene or anything else. Now, I'm not sure what is going on with these masks, whether they just found that it was somehow releasing very small particles on the nanoscale, which is always a, a concern. So we really don't have any more information than that. But obviously, uh, we should abide by the instructions because Health Canada probably did find something. However, I would also say that uh, we have to be careful not to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Uh, graphene is a wonderfully useful material. And it's going to have all kinds of potential in the future. It is already being incorporated because of its strength into things like tennis rackets and hockey sticks and, and tires. It has the ability to formulate all kinds of sensors that can be attached to the body and, and monitor uh, health to all kinds of potential for graphene. Now, whether or not it is the graphene in these uh, uh, masks that is causing the problem or something else that is flaking off, I don't know. We'll, we'll have to wait uh, to see. At this point, I just can't uh, really say anything more than uh, what Health Canada said, <laughs> just to avoid that particular brand of, uh, of, uh, of the mask, which was imported from China, and it's imported by a, a Quebec uh, company. And uh, we'll just have to see how this uh, situation evolves. I suspect that uh, it is all about some very, very small fibers that are flaking off that mask. And there's a possibility, of course, that uh, it is graphene that is, is coming off. Uh, graphene has tremendous potential. Now, a lot of that potential has not yet been, uh, you know, has not materialized, but it will. And some people are saying that, you know, just the way that we had the age of, of bronze or the stone age or the plastic age, we are now looking forward to the age of graphene. 
because the material is going to be so useful. Now, of course, commercially, it is not made by taking a piece of scotch tape and, and stripping off uh, layers from a piece of graphite. Uh, there was so much excitement when that technique was first discovered that uh, scientists around the world launched into experiments to improve upon it. And there certainly are all kinds of, of uh, methodologies now to produce graphene on a larger scale, uh, mostly by electrolysis, where you take a piece of, of graphite and you make it into an electrode uh, and uh, immerse it in a solution with electrolytes and the uh, the ions in the electrolyte will embed themselves in the in the uh, graphite and will cause thin layers of graphene to flake off so now there is graphene to study to uh, you know to test and also for some commercial uses but uh, the tremendous potential that you know is being uh, talked about in making uh, super lasting batteries and uh, supercomputers and all of that using graphene, that is still in the future. But it is really uh, a very, very interesting uh, material. All right, so that's the mask story, and I'm sure that we'll hear more about it and I'll be able to elaborate uh, on it. Obviously, questions are still coming up about the different vaccines and, and which ones uh, are more effective than others and and uh, some people are refusing the astrazeneca because they say it's only some 60 odd percent effective as compared to the 90 plus for pfizer and moderna this is not the way to look at it all of the vaccines that are out there have been shown to prevent hospitalization and death 100 percent that's the important point because we can all put up with the you know, flu-like symptoms. It's the hospital we want to avoid and obviously death that we want to avoid. And all of the vaccines are capable of doing that. Furthermore, the comparison of, let's say, Johnson & Johnson, AstraZeneca, and Pfizer uh, is not a valid comparison in terms of, of uh, comparing the effectiveness. Why? Because the trials that resulted in the numbers that we hear so much about, the 95, the 94, the 62%, 70%, all of these, those trials were not done at the same time and not in the same place. And you can't compare apples to oranges. For example, the Johnson & Johnson trial was done much later than the Pfizer trial. It was done in South Africa where there were already uh, all kinds of variants and uh, it was effective against uh, those variants. Overall effectiveness was less because of the variants, but it was still effective. So it was done at a much later stage of, of uh, COVID-19. And therefore, you know, uh, there were more complications associated with the disease because of the variants and Johnson & Johnson fared well. Similarly, the AstraZeneca studies were not done at the same time as the Pfizer uh, and Moderna. So you can't really compare the numbers directly. What you have to understand is that at this point, the most important thing is to get a vaccine because all of them keep you out of the hospitals and prevent uh, deaths. And chances are that they are also very good at preventing transmission. All right, we've got to take a break here, check the traffic. And after that, we'll come back and uh, hopefully get your answer to my question and talk some Moses. 
Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Sometimes I uh, just assume that everyone knows who you're listening to, and I forget to introduce myself, like today. Uh, I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society. My background is chemistry. I think that chemistry is a science that ties the other sciences together. And if you have a feel for what molecules are all about, you have a pretty good feel for what can and cannot happen in the world. Before I talk about Moses and the burning bush, uh, let's go to Jerry, see if he's got an answer to my question. Hi, Jerry. Good afternoon, Dr. Joe. Well, uh, marble, the pieta, the pieta, pardon me, is made of marble. Marble is calcium carbonate, and the same thing applies to the stalagmite, stalactite. Bingo. Stalagmites, of course, are the columns that rise up in caves. What are the ones that come from the top? Stalactites. Stalactites, exactly. They're on top. And these, uh, these, of course, form when water evaporates and leaves its minerals, mostly calcium uh, carbonate, be behind. And they can be very, very spectacular. In fact, the, the largest one, believe it or not, uh, of stalagmite, 230 feet tall, and that's in a cave in Vietnam. So anyway, the Pieta, of course, is also made of calcium carbonate or marble, and uh, the, the statue is in the Vatican in uh, St. Peter's Basilica, and it's uh, uh, Jesus and uh, his mother Mary who are portrayed, and uh, Mary is kind of uh, coddling Jesus who has just been taken down from, from the cross. It's Can a I very, ask you a very question, Dr. Joe? Yeah. Can I ask you how they get it so smooth with the primitive tools that they had? I mean, when you look at this, it looks like it's been sanded and polished. And would you know what they used to get? The oh, color? yeah. I mean, the, they used the, the finer and finer abrasives, mostly sand. Ah. And you you just keep rubbing and you get it uh, very smooth. Oh, manually. Yeah. Wow. Okay. You know that it was actually, it was uh, brought over to New York, 1964-65, New York World's Fair. Oh. It was in the Vatican Pavilion. And oh. uh, in order to view it, you got on a moving sidewalk because they didn't want people spending too long in front of it. So yeah. you got a glimpse of it as you kind of moved by. And uh, they shipped it to New York in a special container uh, that would survive even if the ship sank and it actually had a beacon in it oh so God. that it would uh, alert uh, rescuers. And uh, it, it's really, a, it's an amazing piece. I mean, I, I, I first uh, saw it in St. Peter's and uh, that was in the uh, in the late 1960s, and it was just open uh, out in you know in in the in the yeah. basilica. You could basically go up to it and and touch it. There was wow. nothing but like a, a rope around it. And then of course there was that uh, terrible yep. incident in 1972, when a mentally disturbed geologist, unfortunately Hungarian born, Laszlo Tóth. <sighs> He, he went in there and he attacked uh, La Pieta with, with a hammer. Yeah. And he, he was yelling that he was Jesus Christ. I mean, risen from the dead, obviously a oh, mentally boy. retarded person. So anyway, he, he uh, broke off a, a chunk from Mary's arm and he also knocked off her nose and 
chipped other parts, people, of course, quickly grabbed those parts and took them away as souvenirs uh, before oh, no. he was he was tackled. Yes. And some people were honest enough to send it back, but uh, they didn't recover all the pieces. But nevertheless, the statue was was repaired. Uh, and even uh, Mary's nose was repaired. Actually, interesting enough, surgically, they, they cut out a piece from the back of the statue and they uh, uh, fixed the nose uh, with it. So it, now, of it course, would match the color and texture, yeah? Yeah. Now, wow. of course, it's behind an acrylic uh, yeah. shield, plexiglass, yeah. and the thick, so that kind of an attack is not going to uh, happen again. There's something else that is unique about uh, the Pieta as far as uh, Michelangelo goes. Do you know what that is? Uh, you got me there. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. It is the only piece of work that Michelangelo created that he ever signed. Signed, oh yeah, that's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In interesting. Wow. So anyway, uh, now it's if anyone ever gets to a, yeah. yeah, if anyone gets a chance to travel again oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, go to Rome, uh, you'll know a bit of the story behind uh, La Pieta. Okay, uh, thanks very much for that. You're welcome. <laughs> okay, so since that was answered, I will now give you another question to think about. Fritz Haber, uh, known for introducing a method to produce ammonia in the early 1900s, and that was one of the biggest um, uh, improvements in the history of chemistry ever, because ammonia is used as a fertilizer. So this has saved the lives of, of millions of people. Anyway, after World War I, Haber tried to pay off Germany's war debt with gold. From where did he propose to get the gold? That's the question. So Fritz Haber tried to pay off Germany's war debt with gold. Where did he propose to get the gold? If you know the answer to that, you give us a call, 514-790-0800. Uh, there are a couple of uh, uh, questions here uh, texted in. Uh, someone says that they were very late watching Breaking Bad and just finished it and uh, questioning whether or not uh, illegal production of meth actually exists like that and on a large scale. Yes, it does. And in fact, Breaking Bad had a scientific consultant, a chemist, to make sure that they got the science right. They were also, of course, careful not to get it too right because they didn't want to give ideas to people. Unfortunately, uh, the production of methamphetamine, the illegal production, is not all that difficult. And uh, it starts with some uh, over-the-counter medication uh, that you can get from uh, pharmacies, pseudoephedrine, which is used as a decongestant. And uh, with a little bit of chemical knowledge, you can convert it into methamphetamine which of course is, is a, a potentially uh, dangerous and, and highly abused uh, substance. So yes, they did get the chemistry uh, mostly right there. <clears throat> Someone else is asking about lead in their water here in Montreal because there are houses that uh, have lead pipes. Mostly the lead pipe connects to the city system. Most of the city pipes have been changed, but. Uh, you can have a house where the, the pipe from the city to, to your house is lead, and you can have some lead in your water. Of course, the only way to know that is to test it. Anyway, the question is uh, from someone who says that they're using a Brita lead filter 
to filter out lead in the tap water, which is a, a good idea. And they're worried that uh, cooking or showering or brushing the teeth with this water could be a problem. I don't think so. The concentration of lead is, is very low. Uh, it doesn't get absorbed through, through the skin. I, I don't think that that is, is an issue and cooking with it is not an issue uh, either. Uh, but again, the only way to know whether or not you have really unusually large amounts of, of lead is to, is to test it. Someone else wants to know whether or not taking 10,000 international units of uh, uh, vitamin D a day is, is excessive. Uh, there's a lot of evidence now for uh, suggesting that uh, vitamin D is the one dietary supplement that is worth taking. The usual suggestion is to take uh, anywhere from one to 2,000 units a day, but uh, many people take 10,000 units at one time a week. And uh, in fact, uh, physicians sometimes prescribe it as that. There's no issue with that. This is not nearly any kind of a toxic dose. Yes, vitamin D is stored. It's stored in the body in fat cells. It's a fat-soluble vitamin. And whenever it is needed, uh, the bloodstream picks it up out of, uh, out of cells. Uh, so I don't think 10,000 uh, D a week is, is, is a problem. But usually the suggestion is to take it on a, on a daily uh, basis. All right. Uh, we're going to take a break here, check what is going on uh, in the world. We'll check in with CTV News. And uh, I'm still going to tell you about Moses and the burning bush. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Do you look upon the universe with wonder in your eyes? Do you tingle with attention when you're taken by surprise? If a problem should perplex you, does it put your brain in gear? Then you're ready for adventure on the science frontier. Moses looked and behold, the bush burned with fire and the bush was not consumed. That passage from Exodus is one of the most famous ones in the entire Bible. After all, it was from that burning bush on Mount Horeb that God spoke to Moses, telling him that he had been chosen to lead his people out of slavery in Egypt. Searching for possible scientific explanations for biblical phenomena is an interesting pastime. Of course, that is all it is, because for those who have faith that biblical accounts are based on true miracles, no scientific explanation is necessary. And for those who are skeptical that the Bible is factual, no scientific rationalization is needed for events they believe never occurred. Whatever one's point of view, biblical stories can serve as a springboard for leaping into some captivating science. Suggestions have been made that the Dictamnus albus plant found throughout Northern Africa is a candidate for the burning bush. In the summer, the plant, also known as the gas plant, exudes a variety of volatile oils that can catch fire readily and may give the impression that the bush is burning. So was Moses witnessing the combustion of a mix of terpenes, flavonoids, coumarins, and phenylpropanoids? An interesting hypothesis about the burning bush, but uh, one that can be readily doused. The plant's volatile oils do not catch fire spontaneously. They need a source of ignition. Moses is unlikely to have been walking around with flintstones looking for bushes to ignite. 
And when the vapors coming off the dictamnus Albus plant do ignite, the flash lasts just a few seconds. Had the flash managed to set the leaves on fire, the bush would certainly have been consumed. So if Moses really did see a burning bush that was not consumed, well, he may just have been seeing things. At least that is the opinion of Benny Shannon, professor of cognitive psychology at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Professor Shannon suggests that Moses may have been having a hallucinatory experience, and he bases that theory on his own fling with plants and that can alter consciousness. It seems Shannon was once invited to a religious ceremony performed by natives of the Amazon, where he had the opportunity to taste a potion made from the ayahuasca plant. Off he went on a hallucinogenic trip, which he described as having spiritual connotations. It isn't clear exactly what he meant by that, but clearly he liked the experience because he claims to have repeated it hundreds of times, even writing a book on the subject. If it happened to him, it could have happened to Moses, he suggests, perhaps somewhat tongue-in-cheek. The problem is that Ayuska is a tropical vine found in the jungles of the Amazon, not in the sands of the desert. So Moses would not have been exposed to the Ayahuasca plant. But nevertheless, uh, it's interesting to think about uh, whether or not plants can actually have such, uh, such effects. And uh, obviously, the Ayahuasca really can. But it does not explain why Moses saw a burning bush. <clears throat> All right. We have William uh, on the line. Hi, William. Hello. Hi. Dr. Schwartz. I'm calling about the gold. Yes, sir. Okay, is it from the seawater? Yes, absolutely. Fritz Haber thought that he would be able to extract gold from seawater. Seawater contains uh, the largest gold depository in the world. There's more gold in seawater than anywhere else. The only problem is extracting it because obviously it is found in such a dilute solution. But uh, Haber thought that he might be able to do it. And he actually sailed around the world in a boat specially equipped uh, with that, trying to find areas of the ocean where there was a concentrated source of gold in the water. The uh, area that he finally located was just off the coast of Newfoundland. But even though there was more gold there than elsewhere in the water, he was never able to uh, extract it. And uh, Fritz Haber, of course, has a very interesting story uh, behind him because uh, uh, he was a German, but he was also Jewish. And uh, even though he was, you know, uh, a contributor to, to Germany's rise to, to power uh, after the First World War, and as I said, even tried to, to pay off, uh, you know, the, the reparations that were decreed by the Allies with, with gold. Uh, so he was really, you know, a, a, a sort of a, what can I say, a German patriot. And yet uh, when the Nazis came to power, he had to flee because he had a, a, a Jewish uh, background and he eventually did, uh, did flee to uh, England. But the uh, Haber process, also known as the Haber-Bosch process, because it was done together with another scientist, Bosch, uh, is still today one of the most important reactions in chemistry because uh, uh, when you can make ammonia, you can make ammonium nitrate, you can make ammonium sulfate, and those are the two most widely used fertilizers in the world. 
and the green revolution, which allowed lots of people to be fed in the world who otherwise would have starved, uh, can be traced back to, uh, to that uh, discovery. All right, thanks very much for that. And uh, we now have yet another question to throw out. I replace all answered questions with unanswered ones so we can uh, get you more and more informed. Why did the US have an increased need for fluorine, the element fluorine during World War II? Interesting element fluorine. This will give us a chance to talk a little bit about it. But the question is, why the US had an increased need for this element during World War II? Okay, well, I said that uh, because uh, Easter is coming up, uh, it's time to talk a little bit about uh, eggs, because of course they are standard fare, both in Easter and also uh, eat lots of eggs during uh, Passover. It's a, it's a staple. The question that uh, you know often comes up is how do you make the perfect hard-boiled egg? You don't want it to be so soft. You don't want it to, to have a, a gray deposit around the yolk. And with some chemical knowledge, we can make an egg that doesn't crack during cooking, that peels easily, it doesn't have a flat bottom, and isn't tainted with that revolting dark green color around the yolk. Well, first of all, we need to understand why an egg hardens when it is cooked. And that's simply a matter of protein chemistry. A raw egg is mostly water in which protein molecules, along with some fat and cholesterol, are suspended. The proteins are long chains of amino acids, and they're coiled up like little balls of string with minimal interaction with each other. Heat causes these molecules to uncoil, exposing sites on their surfaces where they can link to other protein molecules. It is as if the string straightened out and then intertwined with each other. This microscopic clustering is manifested as macroscopic hardness. The molecular clusters also reflect more light, so the cooked eggs lose their transparency. If heating goes on too long, water molecules, which have been trapped in the protein lattice, are squeezed out, leading to an even tighter protein structure and a rubbery texture. So you don't want to overcook that egg. What about the dreaded flat bottom. This can arise because a raw egg does not completely fill its shell. There's a little air pocket inside which actually furnishes a chick with its first breath of air. If this air is not allowed to escape before the white hardens, the egg will develop a flat bottom. Older eggs are more prone to this because they have lost some moisture and therefore have a bigger air space. As the air is heated, it expands and begins to escape through the pore shell. This is often evidenced by a telltale column of bubbles rising from an egg immersed in hot water. If the air expands too fast, however, it can crack the shell and torment the cook with white streamers. These form as the liquidy egg white, the albumin, spills out and coagulates in the hot water. Adding a little salt or lemon juice can circumvent this problem because, like heat, these reagents cause the proteins to unfold, join together, and harden. This happens immediately as the white begins to ooze out, and as a result, the crack is sealed. But it is better to prevent the calamity rather than try to fix the problem after it happens. 
just take a nail or a thumbtack and make a little hole in the egg prior to cooking. The escaping air will prevent pressure buildup and will also allow the egg white to flow into the space previously occupied by the air. No flat bottom now. And you can cook the perfect egg, whether it's for Easter or for Passover. Time to check traffic. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We'll be right back. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. We are born to do science. A baby can do it and so can you. We are born to do science. Just figuring out what's true. All right, let's hit the lines. Edward has been waiting a long time. Edward. Thanks for taking my call, Dr. Schwartz. Uh, it's a question about this um, amino acid called taurine. Taurine. T-A-U-R-I-N-E. Yes. Did you find it in Red Bull? In what? Red Bull, the beverage. Red Bull. Oh? Yeah. And what's he, your, and what, okay. What's your question about it? Uh, it's for eye health. I was looking at, um, uh, you know, like cataracts in terms of white cataracts. Uh they are flavonoids, of course. I found found that vitamins E, selenium, and all that. But I couldn't uh, get uh, the food uh, that has taurine in it. I don't. So, I don't know of any scientific evidence that would suggest that taurine is beneficial uh, for that. In fact, I don't know of any evidence that taurine is beneficial for uh, for anything. Uh, the uh, reason that they put it into Red Bull is because the name taurine comes from taurus, which is bull. And the message is that that taurine in the beverage is supposed to make you strong or feel like like, like a bull, for which there is no uh, no evidence at all. Uh, so I also, I mean, I'm not sure where you found anything about, you know, uh, for the eye. You're talking about taurine supplements for the eye? No, it's amino acid. That, that yeah, yeah, taurine, yeah. But, but, yeah. but. You 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 found something that says that taurine will help eye problems. Yeah, it says um, it helps the um, uh, the tiny um, um, blood supply to the uh, to the eye. It strengthens that for some some kind of reason. Really, I have to look into. I've never never seen that. I've never seen yeah. that. But I mean, taurine uh, is you know it's it's naturally occurring. It's a, it's found in all kinds of uh, uh, foods. Uh, originally, it was extracted from from uh, bull bile, uh, oh, but a... yeah, that's why it's called taurine because that, that was the animal uh, product. Pardon? It's an animal product. It could be, but it can also be made synthetically, so it oh, doesn't have to be an animal uh, product. An- another quick question is about yeah. this um, mineral oil that. Uh, 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 your specialists uh, suggest that it's better to, uh, to put that into a for, for to soften the wax. To use you it know, for what? To soften the the wax in the in years, you know. In, a year. in the ear? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, that that's a possibility. I mean, wax is soluble in mineral oil. Mineral mm-hmm. oil is just a petroleum distillate, and it will dissolve any fatty material, including earwax. That's true. 
Yeah, but we used to um, like uh, cook a little bit of uh, garlic in olive oil and and put it in here, but uh, uh, that's not suggested, right? Can, well, can I, I mean, oil? I don't think the I don't think the garlic is going to do anything, but the oil, any kind of oil, can dissolve wax. Yeah, but the other vegetable oils, uh, they they get rancid in the air, right? In the air, don't it? But they get what? Does not. Rancid. It gets rancid. Rancid. Well, I mean, you would you would rinse your ear after. You don't leave it in there. Uh huh. So, but uh, but I I will look in I will look into the taurine thing. I I don't follow that one. Okay. Anyway, thanks for bringing up. Let me go to Jean Pierre. Jean Pierre. Hello, Doctor Joe. Hi. Hello? I'm sure you have the answer. No, I, I was I wasn't uh, there for a question. I just okay. want to make a comment. Yeah. Hello. Yeah, go ahead. The word, the many journalists um, use the word, uh, the word scientific, uh, chemist, chemistry, synonym with poison. Chemistry is not poison. But in the, the, the journal, they always say that chemistry is used as a word for poison. Yeah, well, you can imagine how much that irritates me. And generally, the word, the word chemistry is not abused as much as the word chemical. Yes. Uh, because we always see the word chemical preceded by a pejorative adjective, yes. <clears throat> poisonous chemical, dangerous chemical, toxic chemical. This, of course, is nonsense because uh, chemicals are not good or bad. Chemicals don't make decisions. People make decisions. The same chemical can be used for benefit or for detriment. I mean, it all dep depends. You know, I mean, obviously, uh, you take something like morphine. Uh, it can be abused when you mainline it, but it can be a wonderful pain reliever for people who have uh, terrible pain. So it, it, morphine isn't good or bad. It all depends on, on how you use it. And uh, yeah, it, I find it uh, extremely irritating when people uh, use uh, you know, the, the word toxic or poison you see to it be everywhere. Journalists synonymous use it with regularly. chemical. Yeah, yes, it is. And uh, you know, I always say that there are no safe or dangerous chemicals. There are only safe or dangerous ways to use them. Yes. And uh, anything in a high enough dose used in the wrong way can be detrimental, including water. You know, you, you can drink enough water to, to have uh, water poisoning. So it doesn't make water bad. It all depends on how we use it. Now, it is true that there are some substances that are toxic at very, very small doses, uh, especially you know, things like ricin, which we find in, 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 in castor beans, uh, botulin toxin produced by the botulinum clostridium bacterium. I mean, these are, are, are you know, uh, poisonous in extremely small amounts. So of course are, are the nerve gases like, like sarin and, and, and tabon. But it doesn't make any sense to just use the term poison as a synonym for chemical, because it depends on the amount to which you're exposed and how you're exposed. The how is also important, you know, because uh, ingesting a chemical is not the same as inhaling it, and it's not the same as being exposed dermally, that is, uh, you know, the skin. Uh, it's very possible that you can put something on the skin, uh, which is irritating, but it would do nothing if you eat it or vice versa. Uh, toxicology is a very complex business, and to try to simplify it by saying that you know chemicals are toxic is just ridiculous. 
another context where they use this expression all the time is when they're talking about endocrine disrupting uh, substances, you know, uh, like things like bisphenol A or phthalates. And uh, I, I constantly see in the lay literature things like toxic bisphenol A or, or carcinogenic uh, bisphenol A, you know, terms like that which uh, do not apply until you put the proper context of what specific endocrine disruptor you're talking about and back to, you know, and and back to, uh, and how you use it. Anyway, uh, you don't have an answer to my question. What was the question? The question was, why did the U.S. have an increased need for fluorine during World War II? Oh, God. To make a parachute? No, 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 you wouldn't use fluorine to make parachutes. All right, you know what? We're going to leave that for uh, next week because I think it's a very good question. It's going to allow us to talk about uh, uh, fluorine and uh, take a bit more time than the few seconds that I have left here Um, because we are smack out of time. I hope that we've uh, covered a wide range of topics for you, that you're smarter now than you were an hour ago. And we'll be back, same station, same time next week to try to make you even smarter. You've been listening to The Dr. Joe Show. And until we meet again, same time, same station next week, I hope that all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.